The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise, as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed, but skirted in the dark, with consciousness suspended and being under luck. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. Hello and welcome to Loneliness and You, the podcast in which we hope to illuminate rather than seal the experience of loneliness and the question of whether it is indeed the maker of the soul. I'm your host, Axel Seaman. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has something to say about loneliness from an academic, artistic, or indeed any other perspective. My guest today is Olya Kudina. Olya, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Hi, Axel, and thanks a lot for having me on this podcast. It's a big honor. My name is Olya Kudina. I'm an assistant professor in ethics and philosophy of technology, and I'm based at TU Delft in the Netherlands. My work has to do with the relation between technologies and values. And lately, it's a lot about AI technologies and human values, how they are dynamic, how they change in reaction to one another, and uh, yeah, how to live well with technologies. Thank you. A very contemporary topic, one that I'm really excited to get stuck into. Before we get into the contemporary problems, questions, opportunities, we look back to our poem, as we always do, and we open with a question of how does it strike you? What are your thoughts? Let us know. I think it's an extremely provocative way how you start the podcast with a poem, and I really appreciate it. It's this intervention, right? because I don't read poetry daily, unfortunately. And Emily Dickinson, I have to say, prior to the podcast, the last time was in high school when we had to learn the poems by heart. And listening to this poem and reading it before the podcast struck me about, on the one hand, parallels in Dickinson's work, but also the contrasts. She's very vividly through metaphors drawing. So in, in this poem, it's really about the illuminate a seal, right? The, what is the function of loneliness, she seems to ask. She also struggles to deal with the duality of it. Maybe there's a formative part to loneliness, but there's also an isolating part to loneliness, how to reconcile sort of the both benefits, but also deal with the drawbacks. But I think it strikes to me as this dilemma that each of us at some point in our lives face about disclosure and sharing, like the sort of keeping of ourselves for ourselves. And disclosure of ourselves, what she refers to, I think, in this poem as surveying to others, because that other poem that I read in, in, and learned in high school was that um, I am nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody, too? And there, the, the, it's a very short poem. The gist of it is the contrast between being somebody and being nobody. And in the poem, nobody is this a person who is in the shadows, in the darkness, and is dreading that disclosure and everything, all the buzz and the responsibilities that go with it. But the alternative that Dickinson draws is being a nobody. And, and that is basically somebody who is lurking in the shadows and barely existing because of that also desire to connect with others, but at the same time not willing to come the cost of being that somebody, that, that public you know, admiring Borg, she compares to. I think it's a theme. <laughs> if I can generalize across the two poems that I know, so I'm not an expert in Emily Dickinson, but it seems to be a general theme in her work that 
speaks to me. I think it might speak to many people because I think each of us at some point in our life or another struggles with that precarious balance of sharing with others and illuminating ourselves to others versus sort of keeping that loneliness part that is also good to reconcile our thoughts, to think of what we want to dream and not per se share. And that resonates with me because of the area where I work, which is technology, because <laughs> I think so much of it feeds into that balance and or this balance. And yeah, I think it's a really great idea how you open the podcast with such a poem. Right. Well, thank you. And you know, thank you for your really um, illuminating thoughts here. So you write, you know, this, this, this sort of ambivalence that the poem displays between disclosure and sharing and, you know, being separate between the good thing that, you know, can come with loneliness, but also the awfulness of this, of it. And, you know, the kind of this, this playful character, even though it is very dark, I, I agree that's, that's essential to the work. Also, you know, what, what I think, you know, was implicit in what you've just said um, is the crucial theme of recognition, right? You know, sort of the, the, the need to be recognized, the, the, you know, sort of the contrast between between being somebody and being nobody. And perhaps, you know, this this thought, you know, recognition, um, which after all lives in an interplay between people, lives in interaction. And perhaps that's a that's a useful um, way to get us closer to what you do for work. Um, so, you know, being in the technological space, right? Um, that's an important aspect of your work, where you could think that well, you know, there's something really different here because after all, the AI, you know, the, the Siri doesn't recognize you. This would be a very simple view and perhaps that's not what yeah. you think, right? Perhaps I, I'm, I'm saying something that's not actually right. So tell us more. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that's a very common sense, uh, what we observe, right? I mean, how technologies that promise on the one hand connection and transcendence of boundaries ironically bring about what seems really perpetual isolation and disconnect and misinformation. So how can that be if the name of a lot of these technologies is social media? I mean, that, this is almost self-contradicting terms, so how can it be? And I think um, the number one conclusion and very big insight for me that I drew from my PhD work still was that technology is hardly ever either the messiah or the destroyer of whatever processes or concepts that you think. It's not bringing just the disconnect or the perpetual connection. It is rather like it's more productive to look at it as a mediator of human practices, of human values, of what people come to aspire and what they actually do. Because as a mediator, technology is not neutral. It's not neutral. It's changing the assumptions with when we start to do things. It's changing our practices while we as humans design these technologies. So it's this really like, you know, the dynamic interrelation between humans and technologies in society. So by that token, there will be a positive impact, but there also inevitably will be a less positive and negative impact. Um, and you can look at it from this, you know, on the one hand, the connection that social media bring, but also profound disconnect because it puts us into silos and niches and like profiling bubbles that perpetuate the same flow of information to people in an attempt to make it personalized and individual, but essentially disconnecting us from the diversity that exists in the world. So it does do something good. It also does do something bad. And the, I think a big scale for me, uh, not just in my work, but just as a person existing in this technological world, is to try to look from different frames, you know, not to try to lock technology into something one, but to try to maintain that multi-stable view. And that's difficult because 
it's so easy, I think, these days to jump into all these only negative, deterministic views of what technology does. Yes, of course, you know, it's really easy to jump into this into this negative view if you are, you know, a, a college professor, if you're an academic and you're mortally afraid, you know, chat GPT, <laughs> how yeah. are your students going to write your papers? But at the same time, of course, you know, this is something that has hugely, you know, rev revolutionized the way we interact and in many ways, you know, opened up ways of interaction that, that just weren't conceivable, you know, not long ago. Before we get into, you know, the value sphere, I'd like like to talk a little bit about the mechanics of how this works. So I've had a little look at a really interesting paper um, of yours that you sent to me, where you, you know, basically take a hermeneutical approach to this. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you say that there's some kind of hermeneutical circle going on. And I found that hugely fascinating. So um, tell us a little bit about that, like, you know, so begin at the beginning, what is a herme hermeneutical circle? And, you know, how does that play out in the AI domain? Thanks a lot, Axel. And I have to say, I don't often get these questions about really the theory part here, so I can definitely tell you all about it. So I think the basis of it, I just explained, right, that mediating part of, of technology. And so the idea with the hermeneutic circle, what I developed is, uh, I didn't put in the idea of hermeneutic circle, Gadamer did based on the work of Martin Heidegger, right? The idea there is that we understand something in interaction with whatever we get. So something, we see something as something because we engage our prior understanding, whether we want it or not, our biases, whether we're aware of them or not, we always invoke our histories into understanding something new. And that new changes us. And that's the circular motion. That's in the very gist of it, what hermeneutic circle is. Relating of a part of our knowledge to a certain whole and letting the whole be reinterpreted and letting it speak again. So that's circular motion. And I thought, well, where do the technologies fit in it? Because very often we do not literally read the technology, as in like a book. You can think a book is a technology, but you can think deeper than that. There's a story behind a book. There's the world that the book discloses. And a book then is a medium that helps to understand the story in a different way. But if you listen to a story on a smart speaker, the same story, chances are you're interpreting and making sense of it in a different way, even though the message very often is the same. But the medium is not neutral. Technology is giving you different ways to perceive the story, to really make sense of it in a different ways because of, you know, the way it's designed in a different way, the different affordances it produces. Even if it's an audiobook, you know, narrated through um, the smart speaker tower, for instance, you are more inclined or less inclined to, to process that information. And you're also, your perception is also changing because of that. So even though the messages might be the same, technologies that help us to process these messages are not neutral. And I thought, okay, that is not really incorporated in the idea of hermeneutic circle. It assumes that straightforward relation there. On the other hand, I come from the world of human technology relations that assumes linear processes between humans and the world mediated through technology. And they were sort of single-handedly going from the human onto the world. And I thought, well, well where's the feedback loop? <laughs> I mean, it is there kind of assumed, but not really made explicit. There's potential to expand it. This theory that I'm referring to is post-phenomenology. And I thought, but it's really cool that they're acknowledging the role of technologies in it because that is very often missing. So I thought that there is an opportunity to kind of combine the traditional philosophical hermeneutic circle accounts with the, this, this more technological mediation approach and the approach that I uh, designed is hermeneutic landscape, which is basically the figure eight-shaped curve, the sort of infinity sign 
where you have several hermeneutic circles happening and mutually informing each other, and they're always expanding, uh, where we acknowledge the productive role of both a human interpreter, a technological medium, and that story, the world setting, that, you know, are changing in interaction with each other. And I think artificial intelligence is a great context here because it is a prime example of how technology in itself, even if we just look at technology, it's not static, it's changing, it's dynamic, it's evolving. And it helps people give a certain way of perceiving the world. It, it communicates certain assumptions to us. I mean, think of Amazon Alexa. I know it's super theoretical, but when we interact with voice assistants, we are never in a neutral relationship because, first of all, it's a speaker that we can position with us, move around in a home. So, you know, it's not a static point that we refer to. We assume that we can carry it with us. It speaks to us in a certain voice that predominantly by design is a female voice. It's called a smart assistant. So it's an assistant that has a female voice that you can move around with you anywhere you want that is available 24-7. This, like, you can't help but form implicitly some assumptions about what this all means. And here we can invoke gender stereotypes and whatnot and the type of standards we're giving to children who are very often interacting with these assistants. On the other hand, we have this dynamic world setting that is, of course, having the policy rules and the laws and guidelines that also helps to, uh, you know, inform the design of these technologies and how they should or should not be in included in society. So it's kind of this mutually informing loop where I believe, and that really goes through all the research that I do also, it's, it's not enough to look only at one component, only as human as the prime agent and only that because the agency is just a human or only at the technological component, or only at the policy world. Looking systemically at their interaction, I think, is key to understand the sense-making, to understand how people interpret things, but also, yeah, what happens at the intersection of these phenomena? And I think, especially in a subject such as loneliness that we're going to talk about, it is so important to not look only at one type of these factors, for instance, only at the biological or physical or clinical determinants of it, but also, where is this happening? Because the way the phenomena of loneliness, as other moral categories also materializes, will be different in different geographical settings, in different, uh, yeah, socioeconomic settings, and we need we need to also you know include that in the way we study that. Yeah. So before we get into into loneliness, one more question on the implications of, you know, this dynamic model of human artificial intelligence interaction that um, you've just outlined, and that that strikes me as, as as very plausible. You point out that you know this isn't value free. So you know you've already sort of given us um, this this example that you know it's it's true. You know, it's it struck me as well that you know these these voices that you hear they're always these gentle female voices. And, and, you know, what does that tell us? Um, and, and also, what consequences does that have? Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? So, you know, in the paper, you also talk about the English language and, you know, sort of what, what role that plays, that this is predominantly in English and a particular kind of English. Tell us a little bit about the normative implications of what you've just outlined. Yeah. So, I mean, if I stick with the example of these smart voice assistants, which can be like, I don't know, for US audiences, it's probably Amazon Alexa that is very uh, familiar, you know, in in the Netherlands and Europe, I think it's uh, Google's Home Assistant. But like we're talking about these smart assistants that are available as smart speakers, but also in your smartphones. Like you hardly ever can just disable them. They're always there. And the way they communicate with them, their design affordances that I say are not neutral. They have a lot of normative impact on how we perceive and what we do eventually. One of them that you just mentioned is 
their tendency to come from Western countries that operate under the mental mode of English language. So it is not surprising that if these language models are developed mostly in the West, then English is the first language in which we turn to. But what I've also noticed when I did my research on normativity of voice assistance, English language mental model is so different from, say, Ukrainian or Korean or Japanese, because the way you express yourself in those languages is different, how you uh, place an order between subject object, what you prioritize in the sentence, so whether you express yourself in plural or singular. It's, it, it's very sensitive to the context of which language you're talking to. But if the prime scheme by which you develop the sort of design pattern, you develop these assistance is based on the pattern of English language, you're going to run into problems because People express themselves differently when they interact with voice assistants because they want to be understood by them. And when technology fails, which it inevitably does, at recognizing the very messy, diverse ways in which people speak, very complex ways, people are not blaming voice assistants. They're starting to adapt to the way they speak in order for their speech to correctly be processed by voice assistants. But this is fundamental, Axel. This is fundamental. We're changing the way we're expressing ourselves for automatic speech recognition algorithms basically to be understood. So instead of changing technology, we're changing, you know, the way we speak. And this is not a trivial thing uh, because we do not know at which point these individual interactions scale up and sort of go into the change on a societal level. That's difficult to study, but we are observing that incidentally also uh, empirically. One of the big examples here, so I'm talking about English language, right? But there are other ways in which this is other these technological affordances that I'm observing. And most of them, it's this command-based, pattern-based um, interaction. That is not strange because the shorter and the sweeter what you say to the technology is, the better it can process it. But that's not how people speak. Look at me. You ask me one question and I'm talking for 15 minutes, right? <laughs> it's probably not what you expect. And it's not what the smart speaker expects. You have to be short to the point and uh, preferably without any jokes or sarcasm because it complicates the sense making for the machine. People very rarely do that. And so what happens is that the smart speaker would say, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. Could you repeat? And then you do it three times, five times. And then inevitable response for a human user is like, well, impolite utterances. Let, let's, let's call it like that. And then, you know, people are getting mad and, and any of that. What I observed, what prompted my research into voice assistance and morality, is how other users around react to that. Because very often, it's little children who inadvertently are the users of these technologies. They observe how their parents or adults around them interact with them, and they start mirroring these interaction patterns in interactions not just with voice assistants, but also beyond. Yes. That is really worrisome because while adults have a lot of those hermeneutic experiences to fall back onto, children have far less. It's a simple matter of, of fact. And it's not the end of the world, you know what I'm saying. But this brings so much more attention and additional responsibility to parents who already have to be responsible, you know, that they, they nurture and nature children according to specific norms, cultural and whatnot. But this is yet another layer that you then have to consider. Because children mirror the curses, they mirror the yelling patterns, and that goes into their default hermeneutic schema of interaction and sociality. 
Yes, I absolutely see that. It's, you know, and everybody who's interacted with, with AI, which by now I take it is pretty much everybody, you know, will we'll really see what, what you mean here, where you adopt a particular way of speaking. I change my accent, accent slightly because um, it's not, accent, you know, it's yes. like my weird accent isn't easily understood. Absolutely. And I, I sort of make it slightly more American and then it, it works better. That's right. And you make it sort of short and sweet. And something, you know, if this, that's right, and now this might just be sort of a trivial little thing, but, you know, on a larger scale, you're absolutely right, this matters. Let's take this thought, this observation, and and move a little bit closer to um, the topic of loneliness. So what comes in massively, I think, in what you're telling us is the notion of recognition um, that, you know, we already sort of came across at um, the beginning of our conversation. When you read what people write about loneliness, then, you know, very often a thought that occurs is loneliness isn't just because there are social interactions that you'd like and can't have, but because in these interactions, you are being recognized. You are being recognized for who you are. You are given space to express yourself in the way in which you want to express yourself. You're being housed in the conversation, in the interaction. And that's somehow, you know, what makes you feel at home in the world. And when that's not there, then, you know, you may feel lonely. And so this kind of recognition is precisely what isn't happening with the AI. Because, you know, I'm telling the thing something and the thing isn't reacting in the way that would allow me to express myself truly in the conversation. When I start swearing, it says thank you very much or something, right? So is that where the risk of loneliness in AI starts or what are your thoughts? That's a really interesting way to look at it, but I would like to challenge that assumption for me. Because I think recognition comes in many different needs and those needs are diverse. And while part of it, where you say this, this, this example, I agree. There are other examples when that recognition need is very much served by technologies such as an eye. So I'm teaching a course on robots and society. And therefore, um, several years, I've been given an example of um, technology called Gatebox, which is a virtual assistant. It's basically like Japan's response to Amazon Alexa and Google Home. But get this, it also has a virtual hologram form. So it's an embodied assistant, right? And uh, you can have a virtual character there, uh, which... Granted, is a female uh, Japanese wife character from anime, so it's it's also limited to that type of persona, but it's embodied. It has a voice, so it speaks back, and it can operate. It's basically like a smart home system. So if you connect it to your phone, it can text you, right? So you can interact with it by by chat function, and uh, it does all sorts of smart home commands, like it can turn on the light, TV, what whatever it is a smart home function does. But then it has this embodied version, and how much traction it got in the society there and how much people welcome it because it serves those needs in the pandemic of loneliness in an isolation in Japan, socially speaking, in the pandemic there of uh, overworking and non-normalized working schedules and lives where people do not have the time and eventually the desire to put themselves up for any type of social challenge and meet new people for whatever reasons, you know, I, I, I can't diagnose that. Gatebox serves this niche product where it attempts to sort of not per se fix the loneliness problem but plays into it by providing the type of virtual companion let's say and people swear by it i mean if you look at the promotion videos of this technology that i speculatively of course confront my students with to hear their opinions there's one thing there with like a worker 
um, a guy basically gets this virtual character home and on the way, like in the morning, this, this virtual assistant tells him like, don't forget to take an umbrella. It's going to rain today. And it hasn't rained all day. And on the way back, it starts raining. And he's like, oh, she thought of me. I have an umbrella on me and it's raining. And this person is leaving from the bus stop, going up the hill to his apartment. And suddenly the light in his apartment lights up and he's like, someone is there waiting for me. Like there is that feeling of intimacy and you're left with this feeling like, Oh wow. Like this really is, well, they've really made a good job to the science fiction thing, but it points to a lot of things. And I can tell you that a lot of my students come from the European or American backgrounds and they're very quick to judge saying, that's just a technological fix. Like you're fooling human. You're actually manipulating a human user into that sort of simulacrum, basically, of, of, of companionship. But this is just a technology. It's not doing anything. And it's actually so bad for the human. Like you're just making the person more lonely, effectively. What I appreciate is the multicultural background in my classes, because I had also several students from, let's say, originally and now from the Asian background, ethnically, and they're very quick to jump in and to point out, you shouldn't judge so fast. You don't know how the cultural impact there plays out. You really are not aware of how difficult it is to make an attempt to socialize, how much effort people have to exhibit, given the overburdened work regimes that the country is having. And in the absence of having basically anything, this is a very nice next best thing because nobody's being fooled but by the fact that this is a human. Like, But the people who use it are very well aware it's a technology. But it gives them some type of technological presence that makes them less lonely. It doesn't make them completely uh, sort of, you know, absolvent of loneliness. But it gives something. And that's the type of discussion I like to have yeah. because... It gives an idea that you shouldn't just jump and sort of, you know, like this, this immediate judgment, because all of these contextual factors shape up what loneliness is mm -hmm. in this context. Mm -hmm. And I think technology can be a worrisome trend in producing and, and producing more siloed societies when we are eventually just one on one and, and we are becoming more and more lonely. But it can also deliver a sense of some type of companionship when structural really institutional issues have to be solved for this problem to become better in some societies. And technology doesn't pretend to fix them, but it does, you know, have a way to change it a little bit. So that's my counterexample and challenge <laughs> to what you said before. Yeah, oh, it's a wonderful example. I mean, I was just thinking back, you know, to when, when, when I was growing up and we had I don't know, you won't remember that, but we had Tamagotchis. And Tamagotchis were sort of early little instances of that like you know so it's like a mini computer and it was just this tiny creature and um we were all obsessed with it and i've never been able to make up my mind that you know goes to the conversation that you're having with your students what it was that i was experiencing there because to me you know this was you had to keep it alive and you had to feed it you know every day by pressing some buttons and when you didn't do that and it died it really did actually feel like a mini death like you know sort of it's just a mini death but but it really felt like something real and i've never been able to sort out in my head whether the emotion that i experienced was basically like a mis a, a, a sort of fake signal a full signal that was signifying something that wasn't there or whether this was actually real and you know this can lead you very 
quickly into very deep philosophical questions about the nature of the mind and whether there is a foundational distinction between humans and machines right um we only have like sort of, we only have like two minutes left but you know i would like to invite you to comment on that what is real because <laughs> i believe your experience of death of tamatoji tamagotchi was extremely real i can tell you i had that the same and i got so traumatized by the continuous death i wasn't able to keep up my tamagotchi life full disclosure i got so distraught my mom had to throw it away she literally threw it away because she's like you're experiencing real traumatic psychological damage from the thing that keeps failing technologically. And she's like, this is not worth your well-being risks. And I was like, so mad at my mom. But hearing your story, who gets to say this was not real? Technologies, even though they're digital, virtual, whatnot, we are experiencing that. And the value of that experiencing is very much real. So whatever these technologies bring about, it is very much, regardless of them being material or embodied, this has an impact on us, and that impact has to be reckoned with. So I think the, 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 this whole realness discussion has to be very much also brought in the context of what people experience and what they go on also doing after that, because our perceptions are linked with our actions, and we need to understand that technology plays a role in that. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I absolutely agree. Um, you know, when I'm having these conversations with my students, so when I teach, you know, sort of philosophy of mind, and then we do a little bit of, you know, artificial intelligence, we talk about Turing machines, we talk about Chinese rooms and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And and I ask my students, so w w what do you think? I mean, are we fundamentally different um, from, you know, computers? And, and often um, they seem to think that, or, you know, they say that the difference is that we have made these machines, but it's not the case that a machine has made us. Yeah. And I, I never quite know what to, what to say in response to that. Um, so do you, do, do you have any? You said two minutes we have left. I mean, I yeah, know, right. That's right. That. Another one, another one, one minute, one minute um, for a part. But, of I mean, I wonder what, so there is a distinction between, of course, humans and technologies. And I think that profoundly has to do with the fact that humans have responsibility and accountability that machines do not. This is much less to do with physicality or embodiment than with these, you know, moral properties that machines are definitely not yet capable of, even though we design them with certain values. They're coming from the environment, from the world and from the humans, not from the self-thinking machine. I'm not a fan of discussing this far-fetched distant future scenarios, you know, the science fiction thing, because I think we have so many problems at the moment to discuss that it would do us well to focus on despeculating AI <laughs> and the consciousness discussion, which may be important as fundamental research, but not about, you know, we have so many issues of, because of how much we hype up AI to be what it is not in the present. And the type of conversations you and I had about Amazon Alexa and children growing up, I mean, they are shaping the way we communicate right now. And we're, we're raising a new generation with those value changes in mind. And I think this is profoundly important because this will have effects also in the future. So I would much rather sort of dehype the presence of AI and the differences between humans and machines to talk about the type of constellations that we're creating already now and the type of impact we're already living in the present. Wonderful. And there we unfortunately really have to leave it, even though I would love to continue the conversation. Perhaps we can um, at another time. Thank you so much. It was really great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Olya Kudina. 
Olya is assistant professor in ethics and philosophy of technology with a particular interest in the ethics of artificial intelligence at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Her new book, Moral Hermeneutics and Technology, Making Moral Sense Through Human-Technology World Relations, is forthcoming with Roman and Littlefield. Thanks for listening to Loneliness and You, the podcast on the research and experience of loneliness.